It's a privilege to be with you this evening. And uh, I was humbled when Ryan asked if I would be willing to uh, do a Lord's Supper service. And so I'm, I'm very glad to stand in the pulpit. It's always been an awesome place for me. And um, I started off rough, as uh, all young preachers do, I think. And I got a little bit better at it, but I always have a certain awe to step into what has been called the sacred desk, among other things. And so I, uh, I want to welcome you to come to God's Word with me. And I'm excited to share with you the things that the Lord has put on my heart this evening. <clears throat> We're here before the Lord's table, and that always is a tremendous time. As a uh, child growing up, I, I remember when I became a Christian, and, and um, there was some teaching about the Lord's table, I, I think enough to where I understood what I was doing, and I always looked forward to it with a certain amount of reverence, and as I have grown to understand more of the significance of the Lord's Supper, it really has been something that uh, is really kind of an awe-inspiring thing. The Lord didn't leave us many symbols, and in fact, in so many ways, the, uh, the Old Testament in particular is iconoclastic. The Lord doesn't want graven images. He would not have us to bow down in front of idols, and this is by no means an idol. But uh, the Lord is so careful to give specific representations of his work and his person, and this is most certainly among the most powerful, and it's one that is almost time out of mind because it harkens back all the way to, of course, the exodus out of Egypt and the, uh, the Passover meal that the Israelites celebrated so, so long ago. The Lord's table really is uh, a, a perfect provision. It's a representation of God's perfect pr- uh, provision, perfect to rescue our souls from the wrath of God because it represents the person of Christ. It's, it's perfect enough to make us righteous and able to stand in the very presence of God. And so my hope this evening as we look to God's word is that we might have a clearer understanding of these things. And I have a, I have a plan, as all preachers do. I have a, a goal this evening, and that would be that in sharing these things, both from the kind of the larger perspective, from the uh, 30,000 feet perspective, as well as the up-close perspective, that through considering God's word and one passage in particular, but several thoughts from across the scriptures, that we would have a greater understanding of what it is to come forward and to break bread together and to drink of the cup that represents the Lord's death and his resurrection. And boy, what a, what a great job has already been done so far. I, I'd love to sing here at this church. And um, one of the things that came to mind, who has felt the nails upon his hands? I rolled my sleeves up and I looked at my hands and thought, not I, not I. And yet those very pictures are here before us in the, in the bread and the wine. So I hope that the things that I'm able to share with you this evening will help you as you prepare your hearts to uh, come to the Lord's table. We always need to be growing in our vision of the Lord Jesus. We need to be growing in our understanding of his person and of his work. And of course, for that purpose, we have the word of God. And it's always amazing to come to God's word. It's his revelation of himself to us. And there are a couple of ways, really, that we go about reading God's word. As I said, there's kind of the uh, 30,000 feet reading, or what we might call the forest reading, right? There's the forest, and there's the trees. And one of the ways that we can come to God's Word is look, looking at it 
across the span. Forest reading is really when we read through the Bible with the goal of getting to the big picture and an impression of what's going on there. And we look at the themes. I, I, as a young child growing up, I, I never really had somebody point that out very deliberately to me. And I think that it is something really that, that has got to be understood because our, our imaginations are dominated by things, aren't they? In our culture, there are things that characterize the American mind. There are things that, that just kind of settle into the very way that we think because there is this thing called American culture. There is this life that we live that's dominated by these elements. And so when we look at the scriptures in a forest sort of way, we're looking for that big picture and those big impressions and those big themes with the goal of those becoming our big picture and our impressions, our themes for life. Forced reading reveals things like, and you've heard these before, this is not my idea, but there's creation, right? There's the theme of creation. There is corruption, and there is the cross, and there is consummation. Some preacher long ago came up with a nice little alliteration there, right? So that we could remember. But what do we have there? We have creation. And you look at the scriptures, and you see God is the creator. He is the designer. We learn very specifically, very deliberately in the New Testament, in books like Colossians, that he is the sustainer. And again, in Hebrews, the book that we'll be looking at, talks about how the Lord um, made everything and keeps it all going. That theme of creation is very important. There's also, of course, the theme of corruption. No sooner had the Lord created, but man fell into sin. And so, Throughout the scripture, cover to cover is this issue of man's corruption. So we have the issue of sins, right? Individual sins, but we also have the issue of sin, as in a sin nature, as in this, this massive pressing theme that is woven into the very life of humanity. Man's corruption. And of course, with that came the loss of our relationship with God. And again, that's a theme that is cover to cover in this book, the scriptures, we have the cross. The theme of the cross is what all of the old looks to and what the new expounds upon. All of history hinges upon the cross of Christ. We see all the way at the beginning of the story in Genesis, God as Savior. We see him killing an animal. We see the shedding of blood. We see the prediction of one who would come from the line of Adam and Eve, who would be a Savior, who would crush Satan's head. We have themes of redemption, and it's literally spelled out book by book by book. Well, we have consummation, and there are lots more themes that we could throw in, but this kind of jumps to the end, and consummation is just that. It's where all of human history is heading. It's where everything is going, and there are lots of ideas about where history is heading and where the U.S. is heading and where the world's economy is heading and where everything else is supposed to be going. But God's word gives us a very definitive look at where God is directing all of human history. We could certainly throw in under that large theme of consummation, the resurrection. And of course, there's also the judgment as well. Those are things that are covered under that idea of consummation. So sometimes we read our scriptures in that way. We, we look at the big picture. We look at the forest, maybe standing on the top of the hillside. I hope that even in just saying that, if some of that idea is new to you and reading in that way, 
that it'll maybe help you to read your Old Testament and some of those other books that are a little more challenging. Sometimes when you're smack dab in the middle of regulations on mildew or skin disease, right? In the Old Testament, those regulations, it's like, what in the world does this have to do with anything? Well, I think we could put it under the theme of corruption, right? Because ultimately those are things that were a result of what came with the fall of man. And so we need to read in that way. There's also tree reading, right? We've got the forest. We also have the trees. And that is getting down into the text, looking at the given details of a certain passage. I love that that's emphasized a good deal here at DSC. Not that uh, forest reading is not, but I, I love the, the pattern of week by week coming and knowing that a passage is going to be put pr- before us and it is going to be um, understood through the language and through the context and all of those tools that Ryan and others bring to the Word of God. Well, why am I pointing all of these things out? I hope that in saying some of these things that we will have really a, uh, a, a clearer picture of the theme of what's going on, some of the themes of which there are several that are found here in coming to the Lord's table. The Lord's table really is, I think, a, a vivid representation of several of the themes of Scripture, right? That, that God, the Creator, entered into the creation as a man, that He walked among sinful men explaining God's plan for salvation from sin. Did you see all that? <laughs> creation corruption, cross. Christ was subjected to all of the fury of sinful men, sinful man, but more than that, he was subjected to the wrath of a holy God on behalf of sinful men. And then as that picture of consummation, we see Jesus raised from the dead, exalted to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And it says that from there he prepares a place for those who are his own. So to direct our attention more specifically to these things this evening, I want to invite you to turn with me to a specific passage of Scripture, and that is Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, and we're, we will consider verses 14 through 18 in particular. I hope that, uh, that maybe you'll go back later this evening. There's so many rich things in the previous part of the chapter. It's, it's not my usual... Um, mode to jump in the middle of a chapter. I'd I'd love to preach through books, but we're going to look at these verses. As you turn there, I want to give you a quick forest look at the book of Hebrews, and that'll, I hope, give us a little bit of a bearing on what it is that we're reading this evening. If there's one theme that, uh, that seems to characterize the book of Hebrews, it is simply that Christ is superior. The superiority of Christ is what the writer has clearly in mind. He begins with what is really a very powerful presentation of Jesus Christ, God's Son. And then what he goes on to do after that initial presentation is he compares Jesus to all of the things that the Hebrews, the Jewish people, would have revered. All of the things that were important to them. So he compares Jesus to angels, And he compares Jesus to Moses, the servant of God. And of course, Moses, the very name was synonymous with the the books of the law, the Pentateuch, those most revered books that the Jews had. And so Jesus is compared with 
with Moses. There's also a comparison between the priesthood of the old covenant, the Levitical priesthood, and Jesus' priesthood. Very deep waters there in the the latter chapters of Hebrews as that comparison is made and those elements of Jesus' priesthood are explained. And in all of these things, the writer of Hebrews is showing the superiority of Jesus Christ. And I think if there's an operative word that's kind of woven in that comparison, it would be the word consider. I was really, uh, really taken by that as I was studying for this message. I saw it again and again, the word consider. Look with me at the beginning in fact, let's, let's start where I said the writer starts. Let's look there, first of all, to Hebrews chapter 1. It should be on the screens. You don't necessarily have to turn there. And I want us to uh, just get a sense of the letter of Hebrews before we look at this specific passage. So Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, this is how he begins. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Here it is. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Wow. Talk about starting your letter with a bang, right? That is the greatness of the Lord Jesus. And then the rest of the book, as I said, is just this explanation of how he transcends every other thing. He is superior than all other things. And as those comparisons are made, there is this word consider. So we jump to Hebrews uh, chapter 3 and verse 1, and it says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. The next one's a little bit longer passage I'll share with you. It's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 24. There the writer says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest, Over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without waiting for he who promises faithful. And here it is. In light of all of that, he says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, right? So with this overwhelming vision of Christ, consider how we can work that in one another's lives. Hebrews 11, verse 11 and verse 26, two of the uh, vignettes out of the the, uh, hall of faith, this long list of people who were called faithful, says uh, in, um, oh, I don't know if I have verse 11 down here. Now I'm seeing, yes, I do. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since uh, since she considered him faithful who had promised. She considered God faithful in the promise that he had made, even though it was impossible by all other measure. Verse 26 speaks of Moses. It says, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth 
than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Again, those who looked to Christ and considered that he was superior. And then finally, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, very familiar to most of us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So we have the theme of Hebrews, the superiority of Christ. And we have this clarion call woven throughout these comparisons made between Jesus and all the greatest things of the old covenant, this word consider. So consider with me. If that's the forest view, if we can go down in the trees for a closer consideration of Jesus. And so I want to uh, look to our passage, Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. It says, Therefore, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For it is, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when, he, when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What a wonderful passage of scripture, and I think very, very poignant for coming to the Lord's table. I think there is a lot here that will bring to light the elements of the Lord's table that we prepare to eat. Remember that Paul um, points out there to the, to the Corinthians what we see also in the Gospels, that Jesus told his disciples as he was taking the greater significance of that meal that they had celebrated their whole lives as good God-fearing Jews, the, um, the Passover meal, and turned it into what we now call the Lord's Supper. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And so as we look through the, the elements of this passage, I think that will help us to do that very thing, is to um, remember what it is that's before us this evening. Look first of all with me in this passage and consider the first thing that we see, and that is that Jesus crossed a divide. Jesus crossed a divide. As the writer of Hebrews says there in verse 14, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Of the same things. Here's one of the great mysteries of Scripture. One of the most profound truths that we as God's people wrestle with. And that is simply this, that God was made a man. That God was made man. We're just on the verge of celebrating, I hope, truly celebrating that very thing, the incarnation of Christ. That is the true glory of Christmas. God crossed a great divide between his nature and our nature, right? Our ability to cross that divide was non-existent. 
But in the same way that we can get down on the ground and coo and babble like a little child and, and act like a little child, God condescended all the way down into the form of a child and became a man and lived and walked among us. You see, flesh and blood are not native to God's nature. John's gospel tells us when Jesus is speaking with the woman at the well there in chapter 4, he says God is what? Spirit. God is spirit. Physicalness, physical bodies, flesh and blood are not native to God's nature. It's interesting the word that's used here for partake. Uh, he himself likewise partook. One of, the, uh, one of the neat things of looking at that Greek word is that it, it refers to the taking of something that is not naturally your own. Right? It's not naturally your own. It wasn't, it wasn't Christ's nature to be fleshly. He took something, he partook of something that was not native to him. So really the mystery of Christ is that he is, in fact, God incarnate, which comes from Latin just meaning in the flesh. God in the flesh, two natures in one person, the hypostatic union, all these hefty theological terms that we throw around, right? If, if you're new to Christianity, if you're considering it as an outsider, perhaps, that might sound amazing to you. God and man combined in one. If you are a Christian, then it definitely sounds amazing to you. Amen? You see, the depth of the good news of the gospel is that just like it says in verse 14, and I love the word, since, right? Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. God deliberately, as part of his plan from all eternity, identified himself with us, becoming one of us, sharing in flesh and blood, and doing so without losing his divine nature. So important is that truth, and this is just a little aside, so important is that truth that the first several hundred years of the church was spent fighting over it. Whether or not Christ was fully man and fully God, Satan did everything in his power to try and destroy that glorious truth. Let's move forward. We see Jesus cross the great divide next. We can see, I think, why it was necessary that the Lord Jesus take on flesh. Look at the second part of verse 14. It says there that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver, verse 15, all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Here's again one of the big themes of Scripture, right? Death. One of the themes that is from end to end is death from the fall of Adam until And Eve, until the time of Christ, death reigned. Paul talks a great deal about that in, in a couple of his letters. You're probably thinking, well, until the time of Christ? No, I'm sorry, buddy, but it's still going on, right? Death still reigns. We've, we've just lost a dear sister in the Lord. We all die. It is part of human nature. Fallen human nature anyway. But you see, there's really more here in, in the, the writer of Hebrews' mind than just that physical death that we all fear. Because there's ultimately more to human nature than just physicality. We believe God's word when it says that there is within our physical man 
a spiritual man as well. Man is both physical and spiritual. And sin and the fall in the garden brought death to both. Both the physical man and the spiritual man. And perhaps the best way to describe that spiritual death is in terms of relationship because that's ultimately what it boils down to. You see, sin kills our spiritual man because it alienates us from God who is the source of our life. And if I had time, I would be able to just run through that thought in great depth. But I want to I focus in on a verse that I think will elucidate that for us. And it's John seventeen three. You probably know it. It says, now this is eternal life. That they may what? Know. That they may know you. The one true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. You see, life is found in relationship. Now, it says there that Jesus conquered death by death. Conquered death by death. We sing a song that uses that very line. Did you, did you catch that? And do you think about the significance of that when we sing those songs? How is it that Jesus' death overcomes death? Well, if, if it is, in fact, a spiritual death, which I think is clear in the text that is the result of sin, right? That loss of relationship. Then if Jesus' death overcomes death, then it really has to ultimately overcome that broken relationship. And that, of course, is the heart of the gospel. You see, it's only as a man, it was only as a man, as a flesh and blood man that God could bring the cure for man's condition. When somebody is charged for a crime they can't say hey i'd like my dog to serve in my stead i'd like uh, you know i'd like somebody else to you know take care of things i've i've got a stuffed animal i've got it, no it's the person right and as a representative of humanity it's adam and it's christ who stand as our representatives so the death that jesus died took away the power of death for every man who believes And it brought that cure for man's condition. It's explained there in verse 17. (coughs) Excuse me. Look there with me. The, The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make, and here's the big word, propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, this verse brings even more themes, right? It it echoes all sorts of things from the Old Testament. But that key word there, propitiation, is where we need to focus our attention because it explains this idea of conquering death by death. That idea of propitiation is is one that means kind of to to pacify, to, to satisfy anger, to be the one who bears the anger in the stead of another, to take it a bit further. And so Jesus says our propitiation is the one who is able to satisfy the wrath of God that is directed against us. The death of the righteous son of God on behalf of sinful man takes away the power of sin and overcomes death. Is that not a glorious truth? devil through temptation wields death he 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 continues to today and the lost it says that he blinds the minds of unbelievers 
But ultimately, his power has been broken. It has been overcome because in the death of Christ, death no longer reigns in us. So much more that we could say, but let's look at one last element here. The Lord Jesus crossed the divide, becoming a man, bringing deity right into the form of a man. He also destroyed death. And if we look at what he is doing now, he continues to defend, continues to defend. Look with me there at verse 18. Simply says this, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. I don't know about you, but I've taken a lot of comfort over the years in that verse, knowing that uh, temptation is around every corner. It's inside of me. It's the enemy that's pressing on me. It's the culture that wants to pull you, as Peter says, into the same flood of dissipation. And yet Christ Jesus can defend us. He's able to help those who are being tempted. Isn't it good to know that you have a defender against your enemy, the devil? You see, even though Jesus has defeated death and ultimately he has defeated Satan, Satan continues to rage against the people of God. He continues to have great power and great influence for so long a time as the Lord allows. And actually the writer of Hebrews covers this very idea in in, uh, the previous part of the chapter. So if you look back to verses six through nine, it's where he's still making that comparison between Jesus and the angels. And he, he, he gets to a very important point. He says there beginning in verse six, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? And of course, the son of man is Jesus himself. You made him for a little while lower than the angels, right? These great celestial beings who Jesus was over as the Lord of heaven. He was made lower because he took the form of a man. You have crowned him with glory and honor, right? Post-resurrection, where is he now? He's at the right hand of the father. He's back on the other side of angelness. Putting everything in subjection under his feet goes on to say now, in putting everything in subjection under him, he has left nothing outside his control. But here's the key. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Satan's power is broken. And though he continues to have sway, the Lord Jesus sits there at the right hand of the Father, guaranteeing salvation for those who are his, for those who believe, able to come to the aid of everyone who is tempted. You see, one day everything will be subjected to Christ. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And until that day, our hope rests firmly that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. It says praying for us, right? We don't, we don't know what to pray, Paul says in Romans 8, and the Spirit intercedes on our behalf with groans that words cannot express. There are great things 
going on on our behalf in the throne room of God. And we have this glorious hope of the resurrection, the consummation of all things. Can you review it in your head where we've come? The superiority of Christ. And, and you and I aren't uh, Jews. I, there may be some here and may know the, uh, the details, the ins and outs of the Old Testament and the covenants and, and have the, the picture of angels and Moses and all these great things that are compared. But, but you can see it, can't you? Even if that's not your heritage, you can see the greatness and the superiority of Christ. And we can look and see those themes across Scripture Themes of a creator creating a body for himself. Of corruption, that sin that has saturated all of humanity, every last fiber being overcome by one who was made more as Adam was, the sinless man who lived a perfect and sinless life. To go to a cross and overcome death by death. And now sits gloriously enthroned, helping his people. So those are some of the things that we remember when we come to the table. When we break off a piece of bread and we remember, we remember what what the Israelites of old were commanded to remember. God is Savior. Who, who, Who has nails through their hands? I don't. Because we have the Lord Jesus represented here. I do hope that that will inform your worship this evening. Help you prepare for remembrance of the Lord's table.